Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This is World's Greatest Con. I'm Brian Brushwood. Story is labor. And telling a good one requires an honest-to-God amount of work that nobody wants to do. Whether it's setting up craft service at 5 a.m. so the Avengers can fight Thanos on a full stomach, laying out the mic so Lady Gaga can record her next single, Securing spotlights to make sure that Jim Gaffigan is perfectly lit when he goes into his Hot Pockets routine. No good story is told without a bit of labor tied to it. What's the line on that labor? What's reasonable for the sake of story? Food, mics, lights, these seem like fair game. But what if your story needs more? What if your story is so important it needs a lot more? I do magic. I fell in love with the idea of a routine. I wanted to shove a skewer through my tongue, sever my tongue, cut it right off on stage hand this gross meat flesh on a stick to an audience member, and then, yes, reveal that I still have a tongue. But there was a problem. All of the fake tongues I knew how to get looked cheesy as hell. It wasn't easy to get high-end prosthetics. So I did what seemed logical at the time. Picked up the phone book. Before you judge, this was the late 90s. Phone books were still a thing. Did a bit of searching and I found a deer processing plant 90 minutes outside of town. Drove down there, walked in, asked the guys, hey, I need some deer tongues, but don't worry, it's for a magic trick. I'm almost certain I did not finish my sentence before they were already severing the tongue out of the mouth of a processed deer. Turns out people don't ask a lot of questions at a deer processing plant. Long story short, I went home with seven severed deer tongues. I get home, I start unbundling things, I figure out real fast, deer tongues look weird. They do not look like human tongues, they're not the right color, they're not exactly the right shape, and oh my god, this is real meat that was inside the mouth of a deer just a few minutes ago. But I have to figure out how to sell them as my tongue, live on stage, 
because this bit lives or dies based on how realistic it looks. That's why I'm using real deer tongues for it. It also hits me that nobody is going to swoop in and give me advice here. I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. I tried boiling one and it turned white and puffy. Microwaving was a disaster. Hard pass. Turns out when you pan fry a deer tongue, it looks like bad steak. I eventually figured out that if I thawed one of the tongues to raw and added just the right amount of red food coloring, it looked enough like a human tongue that I could pull this off. I was down to two tongues for two performances. I took the first one out of the freezer, put it in the fridge, and crossed my fingers that it would be raw by the next day when on stage I could put it in my mouth. Nerve-wracking. Live on stage, I palm it, reach up into my mouth, bite down on one side, pull it out the other, and I get to the part of the routine where the instructions say, now jab the skewer through the tongue. This is the part I hadn't thought of. I bit down as hard as I could on one side, and I pushed down with the skewer into the deer meat tongue in my mouth. And it was at that moment, live on stage, in front of my first sold-out magic show, that I realized it's going to be a bit harder to punch a skewer through a dead deer's tongue than I thought. Like, a lot harder. I'm on stage having a low-grade panic attack, while meanwhile, the people in the front row are realizing that's real gristle and fat and muscle he's punching through. That human being is actually skewering flesh right in front of me. That moment the skewer punctures through, good God. The real gasps of astonishment rippling through the crowd. And then we get to the part of the routine where I cut the tongue out of my skull with scissors. And there, dangling from a skewer, is real flesh. It was beautiful. It was gruesome. It was awful. It was horrifying. It was funny. It was electric. It was everything I ever hoped this moment could be. Mainly gross. I don't think I broke any laws with that routine, but I definitely immediately learned how to make high-quality prosthetics. They traveled better, didn't have to freeze them. Best of all, didn't have to shove a dead deer's tongue in my mouth every night. But what if the stakes were higher than just getting a good return on investment on a four-walled theater for a punk rock magic show, right? What if the stakes of your story involve the sanctity of the free world? How far would you go to protect that? How gross, how dirty would you let your hands get? Would you, I don't know, handle a fresh, rotting human corpse in order to trick Hitler into moving troops somewhere where he shouldn't? For two episodes, we've been talking about an almost romantic story about how the good guys beat the bad through nothing but pure chutzpah. They have to bring their story direct from conception 
to afterlife. If this was Hollywood, they'd spare you the nitty gritty, but we're going to get our hands dirty for a very good story. Cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. And this, this may just be the world's greatest con. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So picture this, the British air, thick with sweat, anxious worry. Because on this night, four bodies are speeding over 400 miles of terrain, all in an effort to pull one over on the greatest villain humanity has ever faced. Four bodies, three of which are still breathing. Ewan Montague and Charles Chumley they could hear the sloshing of their cargo in the backseat of what could best be described as a morgue on wheels with a race car driver barreling northward in the dead of night. I don't know if you try to get some sleep in the middle of all this. It's hard to get some Z's in the backseat of a car that's transporting a rotting human corpse in an airtight canister built for the sole purpose of being dumped into the sea. 
Yeah, I'm going to bet that nobody can sleep in that situation. Before a corpse is a corpse, it's a person, a human being with a name, a birthday, a personality, a soul. Before it's a thing dropped on a beach for Nazis to find, before it's a thing to be transported hundreds of miles through sketchy terrain, before it's a thing dressed in somebody else's clothes and packed full of a soap opera in all the pockets, the thing was a person. A person with the story of their own. A birthday of their own. A name of their own. A name like Glendower Michael. Glendower Michael's story is one of tragedy. Begins in 1909 and ends a short 34 years later. Not happily, not peacefully, but painfully. In a way none of us would ever want to live or die. Part of me wonders if you guys even need to hear this part. But the bigger part of me realizes that without knowing how hard this man's world was to bear in life, we can't really appreciate how important he got to be in death. Because that random corpse we keep referring to at one point was a kid who spent his ages from 10 to 15 watching his father slowly deteriorate from the effects of syphilis. I mean, how hard must it have been to watch those wart-like skin patches form on his father's body over the course of five years. What we do know is that the right side of his father's face sank inward, leading to the kind of trauma that caused him to stab himself in the neck while Glendower was still a boy. It's amazing that what ultimately took the man out wasn't even the syphilis, but rather a case of the flu that turned into pneumonia. That was the last straw. His mother passed in a far less tragic way, laying in bed without warning from a heart attack and an aortic aneurysm. Glendower was 31. Watching one parent pass so painfully is hard enough. I can't imagine what it's like to lose two. We know for sure that the dad had syphilis. We know that Glendower had it, and it is the kind of disease you could be born with. Untreated syphilis is awful. If so, then that's the best explanation for why, from the winter of 1942 to the end of his life, Glendower lived in depressing solitude, floating between treatments at a lunatic asylum, sleeping in abandoned buildings. I wonder what would have happened if any one thing had gone differently for Glendower. Like maybe his dad didn't happen to have the disease, didn't pass it on to the mother, or if he never got it or if the treatments at the asylum had worked. If any of those things were different, would he join that collective idea we have of Britain during World War II? Would he do the stiff upper lip thing? Would he join the military? Would he charge hills? We don't know. Because in our reality, he died alone from eating rat poison. It's unclear to this day if Glendower intentionally ate rat poison or just accidentally swallowed it because it was often spread on stale bread to attract rats to their doom. God, what an awful thought. Being so hungry that you're eating dirt bread. Poisoned dirt bread. 
No one deserves to go out like that. Because Glendower Michael wasn't a rat. He was a person. A person that got dealt one of the worst hands in the history of life. A tragic hand. As unlucky as his entire life was, his death would be at just the right place and just the right time and give him a chance to have in death to have the one thing he never got in life, an opportunity to be somebody. So if Glenn's coming back from the dead to enlist in the military, I suppose his recruiter is Bentley Purchase, a mortuary operator who is one of you and sources on the street. He informed the 20 committee when, quote-unquote, a candidate was identified for the secret mission. In fact, it's thanks to Bentley that Glendower's body was saved from an autopsy that would have made his corpse totally useless. In life, Glendower Michael had no one that saw potential in him. In death, he had plenty. And now, it was time for his real work to begin. So the thing about a corpse is that it's not like a piece of chuck roast that you got at Costco because it was on sale. You just throw it in the freezer and forget about it. If you do that, all of the liquids crystallize. They freeze. And when they freeze, these little jagged edges slice and dice all of the organs and damage them. And none of that is going to fool anybody, even at a casual glance, into believing this is a real body that fell out of the sky. When Charles Chumley and Ewan Montague get a hold of the body of Glendower Michael, they find out real fast that there is a ticking clock on this operation. Three months. If the body of Glendower Michael wasn't dressed, packaged, approved for shipment and disposal within three months of January 28th, 1943, he won't get an opportunity to be anything more than just another lost soul found on the streets of London in wartime. In other words, once mincemeat got going, there was no turning back. The bell could not be unrung. This all becomes super clear when Chumley and Montague show up to St. Pancras Mortuary to grab a photo for the ever-evolving fake personality of Bill Martin. I mean, the plan was simple, right? You prop up Glendower's corpse, snap a quick picture for the ID card, but they got a problem. They quickly learn that flesh rots fast, and even after only a few days at near-freezing temperatures, Glendower's face had already started to go full Day of the Dead, sunken eyes. The boys, they go out and they find a lookalike, hoping that'll be close enough. I mean, it's got to feel like they took an L on this one, right? This has to be perfect. As big as this story is, we went all over it last episode. There's no room for error on this one. The corpse has to be perfect. The ID, the briefcase, the uniform. Oh, yeah. How do you give a dead man a uniform that doesn't look like it's fresh out of the bag? You don't want to do all this work, dump Bill Martin in Hitler's lap, just to have the whole thing ruined because somebody sees a tag still attached? Somebody's going to have to wear Bill Martin's clothes. Wear him in. Every single day leading up to the launch. Right down to the underwear. That responsibility falls to Charles Chumley, the 25-year-old intelligence phenomenon. 25 is a weird age. It's like you're old enough to have great ideas, but too young for anybody to seem to listen. We all know a guy like Chumley. 
Hell, some of us are a guy like Chumley, somebody who desperately wants to achieve greatness. And in some cases, they can even see how to get there. If somebody would just take them seriously, just take the time to listen. You ever have that killer thought that just opens up your entire worldview and makes you realize like there's a whole better way to go about living? That's perpetually Chumley. It was all about the idea, which explains why he was eventually hired as an ideas man for the B1A, the Division of British Intelligence, the one that ran double agents during the war. So it's not at all shocking that a guy like that is all in on the insane story of dropping a corpse on the beach to trick the Nazis. But for Chumley, this moment has even more significance. He's truly gifted in the spy world, but it's not where he wanted to be. He wanted to be on the front line. Both of his brothers served in active combat. One of them died at Dunkirk. You've seen the movie. Chumley, though, he washed out of the Royal Air Force multiple times. Too tall for the cockpit. His eyes were bad. It's got to be moments like these when he's looking at himself wearing a fake dead man's clothes. You ask yourself, is all this worth it? Is this what a hero looks like? I mean, I'm sure he's proud of his plan, but this ain't active combat. He's not dying for the cause. He's wearing underwear. And if you are going to have that thought, it's never going to be more clear than when you have a shocking realization in a morgue freezer on transport night. So this is normally where an ad would go, but we don't have any mattresses to sell you. But what we do have is even better. Do you want to feel like an actual spy? Do you want to feel like somebody who knows how to escape from police-issued handcuffs, pick locks, solve impossible puzzle boxes? We have all of that stuff and so much more. You'll be directly supporting the show if you head on over to con, that's C-O-N, dot scamstuff.com. It's run by us. It is of us. You'll be directly giving us money and making sure we get to keep on telling you about the world's greatest cons. They were going to be dressing the corpse of Glendower Michael. And as they're getting him ready for his transformation into Bill Martin, they dress the corpse in the uniform that Chumley had been wearing in over the last few months. And before you ask, yes, somebody had to draw straws to do the whole underwear part. You'd imagine that would be the worst part of it until you discover there's a problem with boots. See, spending months in near freezing temperatures doesn't totally stop a body from freezing solid on at least a few parts. I don't know if you've given this much thought, but putting on a pair of boots without bending your ankle is just not possible. And you can't do something clever like sew on the boots around the feet because that'll be obvious, right? So the question is, how do you bend the ankle of a frozen corpse without breaking that already fragile foot off of the leg? That'd be disastrous. That'd be the end of the whole operation. And keep in mind, you don't have time for any clever shenanigans. You don't have resources. It's just Montague and Chumley. They're alone in that room with the corpse. They got to get that foot inside a boot, and that ankle is not bending. 
The fate of the whole operation is getting hung up right at this moment and they need a simple solution that they could do right now. And that solution? You grab a space heater and you eyeball it. Get it close, but not too close. Ignore the smell. You've got to defrost the frozen foot of this corpse just enough so it can bend and slide into this military issue boot. Can you imagine the tension in the air in that moment? Wiggling back and forth. Ah, how are we doing? Oh, it's getting softer. Okay, I think I can move it, bend it forward just enough. What do you think was going on through their head during this? I'll tell you this much. I'll bet he never even thought about frozen feet when you're right in your initial clever Trojan horse pitch to the 20 committee. Oh yeah, tricking the enemy with a corpse. It sounds hilarious on paper. Until you're the one defrosting an ankle, twisting it to get it into a freaking boot. Thaw. Test. Twist. Push. Flex. Try again. Gentle. One bit at a time. Oh, yeah. Obviously, they got the foot in there. That was Chumley. He had a dream. He stuck to his guns to achieve it, even if it meant getting his hands dirty. And as they finally get the foot all the way in, lace up the boot, Bill Martin is finally ready to go to war. At this point, I feel gross. And I bet you do too. I mean, how can you not, right? How on earth is everybody supposed to feel okay about the things that these guys did to this poor body? This once living soul. The devaluing of his existence. The willingness to make it a prop for the service of the greater good? I don't know. And then I remember. The only reason anything we're doing right now is possible is because it's all happened before. Like it or not, the dead have stood in service of the living for as long as there have been dead people. Now, I'm not just talking about using animals for meat or clothing or even a magic show. I'm not just talking about heads on pikes to scare away would-be enemies. Do you like the fact that your lifespan doesn't average out to about 35 years? Well, the only reason we have the lives that we do and that we live as long as we do and that we have the comforts that we have is because of the things that people before us have done to the dead to benefit the living. There's a great school myth we've all heard. Leonardo da Vinci, the old scamp, he had to do all of his dissections in secret so as to avoid tipping off the Catholic Church. But truth is stranger than fiction here because it turns out it was the Catholic Church that sanctioned human dissection on the regular back in those days. Mostly women, they had the goal of wanting to understand the genesis of life. And it's those practices of dissection that led to the modern concept of the autopsy. And by understanding all the ways in which we die, it gives us the gift, those of us who are still breathing, to do so far longer than our ancestors would ever have dreamt of. 
If we understand how we die, we learn how to better live. We've got it pretty good these days. And I think it's worthy to take a moment to consider just how much of what we understand about our hearts, our minds, our bones, ourselves, was accomplished by doing unthinkable things to the dead in order to unlock the secrets hidden within us. As gross as it sounds, an autopsy, the cutting apart of corpses, is the final gift of all the generations that came before us. I understand the sentiment that some of you out there might have, that you and Chumley and the entire 20 committee were being gross monsters for doing what they're doing to poor Glendower Michael. But man, the more I think about it, the more I come to understand that they're just another link in a long chain. They've joined an elite line of humans that are doing what needs to be done to the dead in order to protect the living. As horrifying as everything about the Third Reich and the Holocaust is, we know it ends. Chumley and Montague, they don't. And that's why they're getting their hands dirty. We've all had those moments during a long road trip where the chatter stops, everyone just starts looking out the window, a little bit of personal time, some self-reflection. There's that moment when you bear witness to the whizzing trees and the streetlights and the distance, contemplating every moment of your life that brought you to this one moment and asking yourself, was it worth it? I wonder if that was the case for Ewan and Chumley as they took the scenic route, the back roads, to their final destination to drop off the body of the newly minted Bill Martin. Personally, I would have the urge to constantly check the cargo, make sure everything is good to go. I want to double check every suitcase to make sure it was packed with everything I needed. But for them, that option wasn't on the table. Transporting a body from London to Spain sounds so easy you might underwrite that part of your story. I mean, how many problems could there be, right? Let's go through our options. Let's run down the list. Take the body, just dunk it in the water, right? No, too risky. The ship could be spotted. Your whole cover blown. That would ruin everything. Ah, we drop it from an airplane. It's supposed to have surfaced from a plane crash, right? And fortunately, physics is pretty clear on that one. It's not the fall that kills you. It's the stopping. I mean, you drop something from high enough, even into water, it's just going to shatter into a million pieces, especially if it's an already decaying, half-frozen corpse. No, it's got to be something covert and deadly that can deliver the body precisely where you need it, when you need it, without ever being detected. You need something extra, something unique. You need a submarine. Yes, yes, of course. Transport the body via submarine to the location, release it, and you're in business, baby. Eh. Hang on. Submarines are tight spaces, right? 
There are these underwater tubes with hundreds of men on board for weeks, at a, if not months at a time. They're a tight-knit group. They talk. And this mission is so top secret that not even your own men can catch a whiff of what's going on. How are you going to get a rotting corpse on board without arousing suspicion? Our idea guy, Chumley, he didn't exactly have an answer to that one. But someone else did. No, not James Bond again. Number one, he's not real. Number two, Ian Fleming has already left this story. But remember Q? The guy that gives James Bond all of his real-life super sneaky spy supplies in the movies? That department, the Q branch, is real. And during World War II, one of its key players is a guy named Charles Fraser Smith. And it was Mr. Fraser Smith who had the brilliant idea for our friend Chumley. Why not build a custom box for the corpse that would conceal it from everybody not in the know, but also make it precious cargo? Now that's an idea. And just like that, he got underway on a six-foot canister that body included will weigh about 400 pounds. With an airtight seal to prevent the body from, you know, further decay, while being lined with 22-gauge steel on the outside as the interior was stuffed with a layer of wool and a skin the actual body would be set on top of. After that, the whole thing would be sealed shut with welding on one end, rubber gasket on the other, 16 bolts, and a big old fat label that said, Handle with care, optical instruments for special FOS shipment. The case, the design, even the genius lie on the label, all of that gets us from the UK to Spain. But how the hell do you get that corpse from its freezer to the freaking submarine? I mean, if I was going to make up a Hollywood script, I'd say, hire a race car driver. St. John Ratcliffe Stewart Horsefall, or Jock as he was known. He was a racing legend in Europe. He won multiple trophies on the circuit, found notoriety for his unique racing attire. He'd wear a shirt and a tie or a bomber jacket and sleeveless sweaters, depending on his mood. He was a dude that lived for the racing thrill. Somebody who got the attention of MI5, who recruited him at the start of World War II. They asked him to shepherd agents and enemies from one place to another faster than you could say Operation Mincemeat. He was a man that did his part to serve his country the only way he knew how, which of course was by racing like a badass and looking awesome doing it. He was the one that Montague and Chumley turned to for the night of the transport in a customized Fordson van with a V8 engine. It's a weird looking car that seems... Oddly fitting for body transportation. Google it. Worth the trip. Imagine you're one of the country's most popular race car drivers. You are at the top of your game. You do nothing but move high-performance automobiles at a speed that other people can't even conceive of. You're told that you have a chance to help save the world by moving precious cargo from London to the coast of Scotland. You show up, and what's your sweet ride? Looks an awful lot like a U-Haul. 
As you might imagine, carrying out a covert mission with a race car driver as your chauffeur is exactly as insane as it sounds. One of the craziest moments came when Jock missed the turn for a roundabout, ended up driving over the freaking grass center like he was in a Michael Bay movie. Oh, also, did I mention that all of this was happening without headlights? Because it was happening without headlights. When we say covert, we mean covert. And think about this. Montague and Chumley have been living with this idea who they made into a real person. And this is the only road trip they'll ever take with him. This is the end of their tale. How do you let go of this moment? Why would you not stay awake? Once they get to that submarine, their part of this story is over. And like in all good Hollywood adventures, the good guys did eventually make it to Greenock Dock, just in time to meet up with Lieutenant Bill Jewell of the HMS Seraph. It's an S-class submarine operated by the Royal Navy. And for the first time in three months, the body of Glendower Michael, who we now know as Major Bill Martin, would be left in the hands of someone who wasn't Ewan Montague and or Charles Chumley. What do you do? You tip your hat? Give a little half salute? Put your hand over your heart? You whisper a prayer? They created this guy. And now they're saying goodbye as he performs the most important mission of his afterlife. You think they lit up on the dock that night? I mean, it was the 40s. They had to have, right? either in glorious victory of making it to the end of their leg of the journey or out of anxious worry that all of this hard work had been for nothing? Do you think they talked about the failed photo attempt? The weird sunken face? How close things got with the boot? Or maybe in the moment, everything's just too traumatic to think about. Having done everything they could to get their creation ready for the big bad world, knowing that from this point forward, it was out of their hands, just hoping it could survive on its own. Because really, that's all the two could hope for, that the operation would go off without a hitch. Three days have passed. The Seraph is now off the Spanish coast. The trip went about as well as a clandestine mission can go, although some of the crew might have been getting a little bit suspicious about the thing sloshing around the 400-pound container that was most definitely not, quote, optical equipment. Lieutenant Bill Jewell and a few of his closest crew take the container out to the ocean. They open it. First thing they see is a corpse way more decomposed than it should be. Whatever, who's going to be an expert on corpse decomposition after you grab it out of the water? Who knows how long it's been there? This is it. No more hesitation. From Ian Fleming's first note 
to Chumley's pitch, Montague's story work, the personal approval of Winston Churchill himself, it is now time for Bill Martin to go to war. His fight is in the minds of his enemies on the shore. His march will be slow, but his impact could save thousands of lives and possibly win the war. Martin is removed from the container. He's dropped into a current to make sure that it floats all the way to the coast. Good luck, soldier. Just one last thing to do. Orders say we gotta sink this box he came in. Can't have no evidence floating around, right? I mean, this is gonna be the fun part. Your job is to fire 200 plus rounds of ammunition in a box with the purpose of getting it to sink? That's gotta be the highlight of your week, right? So they go for it. They rain hellfire. A hailstorm of bullets starts piercing it, turns the whole thing into Swiss cheese. weird it's not sinking though that's that's a lot of holes i mean how many maybe a few more huh those nerds over at q branch look at that they did too good of a job didn't even sink and eh, no worries i mean whatever we were just blowing off steam anyway hey let's let's take this one you know up the chain excuse me officers would you like to use your service revolvers for the job uh, why, yes, of course I would. That just seems like the responsible thing to do. As we play shooty guns before sunrise. So at this point, the officers are taking turns with their service revolvers, and they're assuming every one shot will be the one that finally take this thing down. I mean, how many holes can this thing... Wow, that's a lot of holes. Yeah, that's a lot of holes. And it still hasn't sunk. Okay, all right, now we have a problem. Because remember our plan leads the Nazis to believe that Bill Martin went down in a plane crash, right? That's not the end of the world because planes are heavy and they sink, right? A little bit weird that there is no plane parts that wash ashore, that, but that's forgivable. What isn't forgivable is a floating corpse box with English on the side, shot up like Swiss cheese, bopping up to the shore. Guys, this would be a disaster. And they can't just bring it back into the boat. This is top secret. Sun is about to peek over the horizon. They need to plan right this minute. Otherwise, Lieutenant Bill Jewell's lack of basic physics understanding is going to take this intricate months-long plan and blow it to smithereens. Wait a minute. Wait, did I just do the thing? Yes, of course I did. I just said the exact solution. That's what we do. We blow it to smithereens. Let's just tow the case farther out to sea. We're going to pack it full of plastic explosives. We're going to push it out. And then one final exclamation mark on this whole adventure. Detonated. And that's exactly what they do. Just like that, the last bit of evidence that Operation Mincemeat ever happened is no more. Oh, and by the way, Bill Jewell never really got around to putting a note about the plastic explosives in his final report. Can't say I blame him. 
we're all storytellers. But not all storytellers are created equal. Most are happy to just sit around the campfire with a couple of brewskis, spinning tales out of true life experiences, maybe jazzed up to get a laugh or a gasp. Tell a joke you heard the other day. Share a tale that maybe didn't technically happen to you. Others take it a step further and they spin story from nothing to get a shock or a scare. A few, a very special few, know the true depth of labor that is crafting a story that will be remembered long after the fire goes out. These special few, they understand the term blood, sweat, and tears isn't just a metaphor. Sometimes, for a really good story, it's real blood, real sweat, and real tears. It's race car drivers. It's slow, careful, plodding effort to get a dead foot into a boot It's plastic explosives to explode the evidence. That's what goes into a story so good that there's no choice but to believe it. I want to believe that I can live in their shadows, that I could be a pale echo of what these master storytellers can do. But I don't know that I could have gotten that foot into that boot that night. And of course, just because you do your job right doesn't mean that it's going to work. Sure, you can find the body, build the identity, dress it up, drop it off where it's supposed to go. Now you're relying on human beings, the marks, people who are not you, people out of your control, the ones who have to do their part to see this thing through. At this point, the story no longer belongs to us. It doesn't belong to the 20 committee doesn't belong to Ian Fleming, doesn't even belong to the Allies. At this point, the story belongs to the Nazis. And only the Nazis can convince the Nazis. Every step of this journey so far has been built on a foundation of guesses as to what the Nazis want to hear and what they will believe. And guess what? It's in their hands now. And there's nothing the Allies can do. The Marks are in charge. And we'll find out whether or not they take the bait in our season finale of World's Greatest Con. This episode of World's Greatest Con was written by Meryl Barr and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. Produced by Dog and Pony Show Audio. Special credit goes to Operation Mince Meat by Ben McIntyre, the source of most of the material we have. By the way, of course, you've got questions. We want to give you answers, so send them in right now to worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. We are now one week into releasing this show, and I've never experienced anything like this. If you know our story, you know that there have been a few times that we've kissed the top of various charts 
but there's always a very quick regression to the mean. And this time it's not happening. As I record this, it's been nearly a week and we are still the number one trending podcast on Pocket Casts. And it leads me to the uncomfortable possibility that maybe we're doing a pretty good show. And if that's the case, I have one humble request of every single one of you. Pick up the phone and call somebody who you think would like the show. Don't forward a link. Don't post it to your Insta, Facebook, whatevers. Actually speak to another human being and explain what it is you're digging about the show so far. Because I don't know about you guys, but this feels pretty special to me. And speaking on behalf of Justin and Merrill, we'd really like to keep this momentum going. In the next episode of World's Greatest Con, this is it. The moment of surrender. When you've done all the work and you have none of the power. And it's entirely up to the mark to fool themselves. Does their plan work? Where does the information go? Who believes it? Who doesn't? All of that in the next episode of World's Greatest Con. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.